Hello, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan. I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. And my guest for this episode is Glenn David Gold. You may know him as the author of Carter Beats the Devil or Sunnyside, uh, two wonderful novels. This is his first memoir. It's called I Will Be Complete. It is just out from Knopf, and I am thrilled to have you here with me, Glenn. Oh, thank you for having me. I have been waiting 100 plus episodes to <laughs> open a podcast with this. So, tell me about your mother. <laughs> Over a hundred episodes, you haven't managed to work that in so far. Yeah, I know. Yeah. All these uh, all these orphans you've been having come onto the uh, onto the show so far. Uh, yeah. So I wrote a memoir, and it turns out to hinge on my relationship with my mom, which perhaps would be surprising to know. I didn't know I was going to do that when I started writing the book. When you know, you know how uh, publishers here, insider baseball. Your, your your listeners may already know this or may not, but they they have you write up a Q and A for uh, publicity's sake. So one of the things is like you know what what misconceptions might people have about you? And my first misconception would be that I think about my mom a lot because I probably know more and know less than most folks, but it just happened to be a very good organizing principle for a lot of the stuff that's happened in my life. There's actually a line towards the end of, of this book that, that jumped out at me where you talk about how historical fiction had been like a really good genre for you because nobody thinks historical fiction is autobiographical. Right. Which enabled you to actually take stuff from your life and essentially plop it into these historical narratives and, and work through it without, without anybody being the wiser for it. Yeah, it was easy, it turned out. I mean, if you, if you put a different date in a different place in front of something and you change the names, it feels like historical fiction, even if you're describing the same emotional arc that things people go through. What was it that prompted you to finally tackle this stuff directly? Not so much like finally is a weird word, because you've been grappling with this stuff for a very long time, it yeah. turns out, just not sharing it with the world. Yeah, well, I had kept trying to do it as fiction, and it kept failing. It was impossible. It was impossible for me to make the chaos of my life into something that felt fictionally valid in the sense that it held emotional weight and acuity. It always felt like parody or like a poorly observed parent rather than a very specifically observed parent. And so I think that I'd gotten to a place where I wanted to understand. Well, you know, here, let me, let me cut through all that. Look. It's you and you guys. Let me give you the truth. Uh, I was in therapy, and uh, in therapy, I'd, I'd kind of gotten to a place where I realized, oh, now I understand. The stuff that had been bothering me for so much that I didn't have a good explanation for, it was like, uh, oh, actually, I'm happy, and I'm relaxed, and I can look at the facts of my life without them feeling too hot to handle. I think that what happens a lot when you go through trauma is that there's certain things that you feel if you actually look directly at them, you'll be torn to pieces. And I didn't feel that way anymore. And so I was curious, all right, now that I don't feel that way anymore, what is it actually like to get out all this jigsaw puzzle and try to put it together? And in terms of that jigsaw puzzle, you don't say so explicitly in the memoir, but pretty big theme of this book is that Philip Larkin was right in terms of the, the famous line about, you know, they fuck you up, your mom. And, oh, that one, yeah. So, yeah, I'm horribly illiterate in a lot of ways. But, yeah, I mean, but, well, okay, so... For me, I would say what I took away as prize in writing this was how little of the damage that my parents did had much to do with me. I really feel that they damaged their own lives, and just like it was like that was where the explosion happened, and anybody who happened to be staying too close to it might have gotten injured by it. 
but it was collateral damage. It was not something they intended to do. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and that might not even yeah. contradict what old Philip Larkin says. That's so, true. Like, yeah. And I think maybe in terms of that framing of it, being an eyewitness into that mutual destruction yeah. shaped you and your emotional responses to a lot of things. Yeah, I definitely became an intense observer, an acute observer of things. I needed to have an interior monologue that always explained why things were related to each other, why things had changed, and then was always looking for a reason for why things were the way they were, like, I guess, a worldview to build around the things I'd seen so far. And you saw a lot. I mean, like the whole first third of this memoir, in terms of, to go with the metaphor that we've been using here, sort of like the spectacularity of that explosion. I mean, you're pre-adolescent... Your folks have split up, and your mom falls in with the first of many dubious men. Suddenly, you're in San Francisco in the late 60s, early 70s. Walk us through some of that, I guess. All right. Just to, to set up this, my dad made $5 million one day by pioneering the use of cassette tape. He, uh, he signed up Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass which was then the number one band in America, and made a big pile of money that on another day he lost every penny of when Herb Alpert was driving down the Pacific Coast Highway, puts in a tape, tape jams, puts in another tape, it jams too, and it just turned out that the manufacturing was not as good as my dad's promises of it were. So my dad got fired, he lost all of his money, and in between, they got divorced, and we had had a very, I don't think bourgeois, I mean, to cover it. It was... It was uh, ostentatious lifestyle in that sort of 1969 harvest gold avocado green conversation pitch shag op art nail art Roy Lichtenstein dark room in the house Hammond follow the Piper organ sort of uh, uh, household in Corona del Mar on the beach and uh, then we lost it all but my mother had a settlement we moved to San Francisco together and my mother was a very cultured woman who had had uh, extensive very hard to understand background in, in, in England and Europe uh, with all kinds of mysteries in it. And now that she was on her own, she wanted to have that life of style and elan again. And in San Francisco, there were a lot of people in the mid-70s who post-hippie, pre-AIDS, human potential movement, you know, EST, and a lot of things like that. There were a lot of con men out there who were really ready to prey on women like my mom, a beautiful woman with a divorce settlement. And she was relatively unable to distinguish, well, that sells her short. I was going to say she was unable to distinguish between a con and a real offer. I think she could, it's just that she leaned into the con for her own reasons, her own self-destructive reasons. And as a result, she fell in love with a guy who was a fashion designer in New York. And I went off to school one morning and uh, came home to find out that she'd gotten on the plane with him and moved to New York without telling me. So I lived on my own for on and off for about four months. Uh, There's probably no point at which I was alone for longer than about two weeks. Adults came in and came out, but it was they weren't exactly helicopter parents, exactly. Mm-hmm. Let's just sort of see the helicopter going far away. And then I... Got myself together by going to boarding school. I applied to boarding school, went there, and then spent a lot of time trying to build my own family. I worked in an independent bookstore. Are we going? Am I going too far? Am I, uh... As far as you want to go. Uh, okay, all right. This, this is sort of the general mm-hmm. general thing of the book. So the uh, I worked in an independent bookstore when I was 19 with a bunch of freaks and very talented writers and artists and painters and dancers and a guy who had imaginary children. And the imaginary children wrote me letters, and that's kind of how I learned about being a fiction writer. And then when I was in my uh, later 20s, I fell in love with a woman who I thought I was going to marry. 
I, as far as I can tell, it was the same week that my mother met a guy she called her soulmate, who was a illiterate crystal meth addict who was a little bit older than I was. He was very violent. So the end of this book is actually about trying to find some place to stand back a little bit and to have some autonomy from difficult family members. I think that's prob there's probably a way to do that in fiction, but for me the most vivid possible way was to get as dirty and gunky as possible with all my emotional reactions to very specific things. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that you know one of the reasons it became possible to write this book now is because the, the trauma was far back enough and the emotions had cooled enough that you could look at them objectively mm -hmm. thanks to therapy. And it's not funny because, um, you know, you write in here about like one of the first times that you really attempted to deal with this. Um, you did it as a novel and you wrote it in like 10 days while suffering a fever. Yes. Yes. So I was, uh, say about 25, 26, 27, something like that. I was in a declining relationship with my girlfriend at the time and she was, she was out of town. I started to have this agony overcome me, and it turned out to be a kidney stone. And I had uh, four or five days trying to pass the kidney stone. This is pre-laser time where you just basically had to wait for it to come out and piss through a strainer. And as I was agonizing over it, I thought, oh, my God, what if I die? What if I die? Like, Okay, if I'm going to die, what's what's the thing I need to write before I die? So I just spat out 10,000, 12,000 words a day. It ended up being about 70,000 words. The story of myself at 12, everything that had happened to me. With the names changed, that was it. I didn't try to do anything clever. I didn't try to make myself look better or worse. I just changed names. And it came out vividly and vibrantly to me, but it was not successful. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's right, though. But, you know, you also say that it's like that, as unsuccessful as it was, it was the first manuscript that actually made a literary agent sort of, like, sit down with you and say, like, Oh, no, okay. no, no, no. Oh, no. That's a different one. Oh, no, that's a different one. I like that idea. I like that it had something. No, this had nothing. Okay. <laughs> it was... It was just, it was still hot. It was still, like, there was a lot of anger in there that was mm -hmm. unprocessed. Okay. The one that made everybody, actually, so the one that made the guys sit down and talk to me was my next book, which was called My Dead Mom. Thank you. And it was, it featured a mute, bad writer named Glenn David Gold, whose mother was killed in a lightning strike. Nothing about it, the character was anything like me. I was, I actually had fun making up a completely different Glenn David Gold, although I also knew I was a bad writer at the time. And the mom was different. Life situation was totally different. But I had done something that the first 40 pages of that made some kind of sense. I've gone back and I've looked at him again. And I think that if I were an agent looking for talent, I would look at this and go, okay, this is better than a lot of stuff. And, you know, you've got potential, son. Mm -hmm. This is the first thing I had that, like, lifted off a little bit. It was still too clever. Can we swear on this podcast? Yeah. Still too fucking clever. But the, the agent who sat down with you and said, okay, look, these 40 pages are really great. Mm -hmm. The next couple dozen pages are okay. And then you just lose the thread. Yeah. But he also said it's like, yeah, again, he, he said was like, right. <laughs> yeah, he yeah. was right. Yeah. But he also put you on the path towards becoming the writer who could eventually write this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom Cole, his name was. First 40 pages, next 100 pages, last 200 pages. First 40 pages, great, good, crap. And then he said, he asked me how old I was. I said I was 30. He said, congratulations. You wanted to write the great American novel before you were 30. You didn't do it. You're free. And... He was right. I, I didn't have as much to struggle for anymore. It took a lot of that self-consciousness off my shoulders. I was not going to be a young genius. Unlike, say, David Levitt. <laughs> <laughs> 
And if you ever reads this book, I'm very, very sorry, David. It happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I sh- we should clarify that. So, yeah, well, how would you clarify it? I'm curious. <laughs> the period that you are writing about is also a period during which David Levitt debuted to great renown within American letters, let's say. Yes, he did. Well, what happened is Esquire published an essay of his, and they put on the cover it's the debut work from the premier, uh, what was it, like the premier chronicler of a new as yet unnamed generation. And I was like, you know, I was, we're the same age. I was like, God damn it. <laughs> like, you know, I wanted to be that person. And, you know, the essay was fine. It was great. I, I enjoyed it, but the same, but it doesn't matter because I still hated him because he had this, you know, renown that how could he possibly get renowned by actually doing the work and publishing it and not me for not doing the work and not publishing it? That should rightfully be mine. So I, yeah, um, I, he was he was my you know my interior nemesis. That, you know, completely ridiculously he was that. And then you finally, well, you didn't confront him exactly. No, but you, you, you went to a bookstore. I went to a bookstore, and he was so nice. And I asked the question about about you know being what's it like being the voice of an unnamed generation, and he was just like just blushed. He was so embarrassed. He's like, you know, so what you might not know is you turn in an essay and the editor is the person that puts on the headline. So all of a sudden they were selling him as something he didn't want to be sold at. And I was like, wow, okay, I get you. I have to find somebody else to hate now. But the, luckily that's usually when you're unpublished. See, see now and here I was hoping that like, you know, you and David Leffert would be great friends now, much, much like you and Timothy Hutton. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I, I met David Leffert at a party about 10 years ago. I, uh, I didn't confess any of that at that point. It was just a little... It's like at the same time, like when I finally met Michael Stipe, which is not in the book, but I did finally meet Michael Stipe. He said, I, I said, do you ever have an experience where you meet somebody and you just, you just don't have anything to say? He said, yeah, because there's nothing to say. And I said, no, no, there's a lot to say, but I think I got a book you got to wait for um, because I just that was too much. And that's actually probably a bit that... Uh, well, I mean... We won't get into the REME parts yeah. specifically. There are REME parts. There are REME parts. In the yeah, book, though, yeah, there are some very REME passages <laughs> in this book. But obliquely, I mean, to bounce around a bit, I mean, one of those leads to one of the things that I wanted to talk about, which is that, uh, and we've talked about the the relationship with uh, the girlfriend, the, the one that you thought you were going to marry that mm-hmm. sort of dwindled in the last couple of years, yeah. which also became sort of like the weird psychic summer. When I was... My early 20s and living in Berkeley in one of those houses with other people who had all graduated and should have left, but we all ended up just hanging out because Berkeley was easy. Uh, there was a woman there who was the local femme fatale who had a big old crush on, and we fell for each other. She was she was great, and then also we ended up doing well. We thought it was ecstasy. To this day, I'm not exactly sure what it was, but it was, was something like ecstasy, and it uh, had this effect which is almost impossible to write about because it we had an experience that should not have really happened, which was a continuing psychic connection, not just during the time of the drug, but afterwards we could sort of overhear each other's thoughts. And I felt ripped off that that did not lead to a relationship that would stay. But uh, it turns out to be sort of a textbook description of what happens when you uh, mistake uh, intensity for intimacy. That kind of emotional mistake or, or you know, misidentification. That was a big part of the, how to put this, um, you were very good at making the same mistakes over and over again. Why, thank you. <laughs> Until you stopped. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, sure. Or paused. Or pause. <laughs> and you write about how, I mean, you knew you were making the same mistakes over and over again mm-hmm. and didn't want to. 
but at the same time, you know, because of the the, the tendency that you would describe to sort of have that interior mo- interior monologue, the interior narrator mm-hmm. saying it's like, well, you know, this is why this is happening, this is why this is happening, and yet you couldn't really break free of the pattern still. Yeah. <laughs> Guilty. I think that there's a price to be paid for actually changing, and change is hard, and it takes more than one go-around to do it. I remember uh, when I was an undergraduate in a lecture class, we were reading Invisible Man, and forgive me, it's been so long since I read it. I read it in class, which means that everything left my brain when the semester ended. But as I recall, there's a point where he ends up in a hospital, and there's something he does in the hospital that repeats exactly the same mistake he made earlier in the book. And I remember the teacher saying this was an example of a failure in the writing. And this guy in the back raises his hand. He's an older guy in his 60s. And they go, ah, 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 no. He said, no, that's the strongest part of the book. You never learn from your mistakes. I always appreciated that. So I felt that, you know, enshrining the inability to take in information, it's not just honesty, but also I think that it gives readers a way to not beat themselves up. You know, you, you, people who buy self-help books, I think, sometimes think that there's, oh my God, I didn't make it to step three yet, and it's, it's, but it's a circle. You, you keep on, you keep on going back to the same place over and over again, particularly with trauma, when it's hard to get out of that phase. And so, uh, yeah. And one of the things that you've realized is that although this is a very unique story in its details, and it's, and it's a great story, and everybody should go out and read it because it is very unique. Let's, let's. Emphasize its specialness in that regard. The more you talk about it with other people, the more you came to realize that other people have fucked up relationships with their parents as well. Boy, howdy. Yeah, yeah. And that you, you weren't the freak that you thought you were necessarily. No, well, it, I always felt like there were other people out there that had similar things happen, but didn't have an avenue for knowing how to discuss it. So, like, for instance... Neither of my parents are bad people. I mean, they're not monsters in any way. They're not, there's no smoking gun as far as like some, some bit of behavior that they should be in jail for. It's they made bizarre decisions, selfish decisions, bad decisions, some good decisions, but they all add, nonetheless, it all adds up to stuff, a burden on the shoulder of a kid that the kid should not have had on them. And the thing is, I didn't know that until I was about 40, you know, because I'm pretty tough. And also, my mom in particular had a, a nightmarish childhood. I mean, she had one of those genuine, you know, 10 for 10 for difficulty childhoods. I did not. I mean, I had the the privilege of having, you know, some money and some space and some time to, and, and, and being a, a guy growing up that she did not growing up in, in World War II in London. So, like, her story is one that is more familiar, is of, of a particular combination of trauma, survival, and maybe not quite making it. Mine is harder to tell because I'm not flattened by it. But it's like a constant feeling of there's something bad going on that I don't know how to deal with. And I don't know how to find a boundary with a parent who is compelling and difficult and needs obviously needs help. What do I do? And it took, you know, beyond even the therapy and getting through it, it took me to the point of knowing, oh, I have to cut her off. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, I don't want to say there's no happy ending. Yeah. But it's not it's not going to be the happy ending where, you know, we all work out our issues and are able to come together as a big happy family. Once yeah. Again. Yeah. I mean, I noticed a lot of memoirs are either as the thing that frustrated me about The Glass Castle, which is a brilliant book, which is really well written, is at the end she forgives everybody. I'm like, wait a minute. Hold on. You know, time out. I have uh, I have I have a different opinion here. Not to castigate anybody, but there's there's something be, there's there's, you know, the traditional memoirs are. 
ending, and my family were all monsters, and now I'm all healed because, you know, I'm holding this door against them. That's one, and the other is, ah, but they're my family, so I forgive them, you know, and welcome and embrace. I think there's another way to go with it, which is hold them accountable and walk off alone. And occasionally get long, rambling emails about how ungrateful you are. <laughs> Possibly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Which raises a, a, a good question. I mean... Your father, you mentioned in the acknowledgments, has read drafts of yes. this. Yeah. Uh, has your mom seen this at all? I don't know. No, we, have, we are not in touch. Okay. You, you have been able to like maintain that connection with your father. To, yeah. He, yeah, I live near him, too, and he's, uh, he's 87. He has Parkinson's. He's uh, had a brain tumor and stuff, and he's, uh, he was a little struggling a little bit physically. But he, I think the book was kind of a shock for a while, and then I, he's come to very much feel, well, as he says, he feels he comes across as a benign putz. Okay. You know, I mean, I think that's about right. Yeah, no, we're, we're okay. You mentioned just now the, the sort of like the two types of memoir, family memoir outcomes. Mm-hmm. And in, in mentioning that, I should ask, you know, as you were trying to really struggle through this material for, you know, the, the time where you were like, okay, this time I'm going to do it. Yeah. Were there memoirs where you were able to sort of see a model or, or uh-huh. a, a roadmap for what you wanted to do? It's a really good question. No. I read a lot of memoirs, and I got tired of a lot of memoirs. And that's, it probably has very little to do with their actual quality and everything to do with it. I was looking at them as if they were the ingredients in a recipe I was going to make, you know, and to serve casting off, you know, this chart is old, you know, this is bitter, because I had a specific thing I wanted to do and I wasn't seeing it anywhere. I mean, there's plenty of memoirs that I love. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, God, Christian Hirsch's Rat Girl. I just, unra- I was like, I just found, I just found a box of books again. I saw it at the top. I was like, wow, I got to read that again. Have you read her? No, I haven't read that one. Do you know who, what that is? No. So Christian Hirsch from Throwing Muses. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's been a while, so I'm, I'm shaving off the edges of the truth here. But so she's 15, bicycle accident, goes into a coma, comes out of the coma with music in her head, kind of this raucous music that she does not know how to play. So she forms a band to play the song she hears in her head, which turns out to be Fish. And then once they've got that played, the song's gone. And a couple of days later, another song comes into her head. And it's madness, maybe? <laughs> it's sort of hard to tell. And she also struggles with some bipolar, and then she also, it's a cast of zany characters, and then also about being a touring female rock band, what that means in the the age of the Pixies and things, and also overcoming a lot of issues in order to become an artist. But anyway, that's just one thing. But there's, you know, I love uh, Anders Nielsen's Don't Go Where I Can't Follow. Uh, I love the memoirs of Casanova. Jeffrey Wolf, as I mentioned before, Duke of Deception, This Boy's Life. Uh, and for all the ways I argued with it, uh, I thought Glass Castle was really good. My Father's Castle, My Mother's Glory, or it's My Mother's Castle, My Father's Glory by Marcel Pagnol. Those two books are brilliant, genius, light, wouldn't change a word of them. But again, not they weren't inspirational for me in any way. I mean, I had more, I'm not even sure if this is true, if I had fictional role models, but I knew that I needed to use tools of fiction to make this book better because it really blew. It was a terrible manuscript for a long time. And it wasn't really until I I started shaping it like a work of fiction that it made more sense. How would you describe how that that, that process? So after I had a draft of each volume, it was three volumes in here in this book. This is to me it's three separate books. Can off one of them being under one cover, which I'm fine with. But when I finished each book separately, I would reread it 
and say, okay, if this was a novel, who's the protagonist? What does the protagonist want? What are the obstacles? What are the outcome? And like storyboard it. And that changed the shape of it somewhat. You know, it, it didn't change any of the events, but it changed the amount that I analyzed or the, the amount of emphasis I gave to each event. So I could kind of feel the rising and fall as if it was a novel. And like, okay, right here, spend a little more time focusing on this. I can cut these scenes out entirely because they don't actually move that narrative forward anymore. And, you know, made everything about a third shorter. And it was mostly a matter also of making myself a character, uh, which I was profoundly uncomfortable with until Rob Spillman shoved me in front of uh, the situation in the story by Vivian Gornick, which is about the difference between journalism and writing memoir and how you cannot write an objective memoir. You cannot be a floating eye. You can't let the reader do the work, which is all the stuff you kind of learn in journalism. You actually have to be a thumb on the scale and get comfortable with it. And that's when things started to get livelier. People started to have more of a reaction to it when I was willing to put my smart-ass, somewhat jerkish, uh, self-obsessed, but funny, observant self in there. It started to feel more like a book to people. Now, you had mentioned way back at the beginning that it became possible to do any of this writing you know, after the therapy, mm-hmm. uh, after, after the process. Clearly, like a, a lot of life changes had already occurred before you dove into the writing. Mm-hmm. Did the writing then, I mean, because you had already had this transformation, were you just able to, okay, now I can do the writing, or did the writing itself set off another round of transformations? Oh, uh, well, oh, I see. Life, just life imitate art, imitate life, imitate art, imitate life. Yes, yes. I think I became a more confident writer because of writing. Yes. I think that you know, my previous novels, I'm really good at structure. I know how to set a scene. I know how to deceive. <laughs> and I know the superstructure of the book as well as structuring a scene. I was not as adept with that sort of Chekhovian interior. Character feels 30% this way, 60% that way, and 10% they don't know kind of overlap of things. And now I feel a bit more confident with that messy interior than I did before. And is that something you can take back to your fiction? <laughs> now that I've cheated on fiction, can I bring <laughs> it back? I think so. Yeah, yeah, actually. Yeah, there's there's one short story I wrote for Zizova while I was writing the memoir that was sort of a prototype piece of what fiction would look like on the other side of that. And it feels much more like parsing the 48 different versions of I'm fine. You are fine. <laughs> I'm more than fine, yeah, right. Yeah, I'm in a really good spot. I mean, it's weird because, you know, the entire world is falling to pieces. Everybody, we know this, but just like on my own personal micro dot, I'm good enough that I'm sort of, I spend most of my, you know, homelessness in L.A. is a big issue. I'm trying to figure out exactly what to do to be the most efficient and helping out with that. I mean, I need to, I need to comfort the afflicted at this point. I'm, I'm pretty well taken care of. Which is actually something that, I mean, you don't really address that and I will be complete at all, because that's not what this story is about. I mean, this story is about young, struggling, fucked up Glenn David Gould. <laughs> so you don't even start writing Carter Beats the Devil in this book. No. But Volume 4. <laughs> yeah, because I was going to say, um, yeah, that there's a, 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 a transformation. I mean, the, the writer who came out of that experience yeah. is a much different person 
than the one who lives through all of, of all of this. Yeah, I think the when I think what you get in the last pages of me at UC Irvine when I've just gone back and seen my old doctor, um, my old therapist. That's like day one of me writing Carter right there. That's you know that's it, there's there was some overlap. This was the person who would become capable of. Yeah, I feel like I left off at that point where I don't think you'd be the person who's just had those revelations, had those conversations, is internalizing them. I don't think you'd be surprised if that person sat down and a couple days later said, you know, morning after the president's death, you know, it would would make some sense, I think. Well, in order to understand what that all means, you're going to have to read I Will Be Complete. And you should read I Will Be Complete. I, I was joking on Twitter before I came to sit down. I keep wanting to call it I Shall Be Complete, because then I can sing it to like, the band song. <laughs> <laughs> if, if Stan Lee wrote it, it would be called I Shall Be Complete. <laughs> it's I Will Be Complete by Glenn David Gold, just out from Knopf. Isn't that a pretty cover, too? It's a gorgeous cover, too. You, you, you won't be able to miss it out there on the, on the bookshelves. You've been listening to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan. And if you've enjoyed this episode, then you should go onto iTunes and throw a bunch of stars on it and give it a really nice review. It makes it that much easier for other people to find it when they do the searches and all. And you can subscribe as well, and then you'll find out whenever new episodes come up online. Thanks for joining me and Glenn David Gold for this conversation. I hope you'll be able to join us again for another conversation soon. Thanks. Take care.